0: July 1st, marked the date BC Assessment estimated the annual market value of properties in BC. And if you've been keeping an eye on local real estate prices, now is a good time to know what's happening in the housing market where you live. We're joined by Brian Smith. He's Deputy Assessor at BC Assessment to help us understand the process. And we welcome you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys today? Excellent. Thank you for being with us. First question for you. Why is July 1st significant when the actual notice won't arrive until January 2017?
1: Well, July 1st is important because that's the date that we actually determine what the market value of your property is. Uh, so we look at properties that have sold in and around that July 1st so that we have a good idea as to what the you know, probable sale price would be for your property as of that date.
0: Mm-hmm. So how does your process work at, at BC Assessment? Uh, do you go door by door, knock, knock? Uh, can we have a look around uh, see how many cherry trees you have in the backyard?
1: No, we we utilize um, a bunch of different methods to collect our information. Uh, we use uh, building permits, we use real estate transactions, we talk to members of the community about you know what the real estate trends are doing within the area. We also utilize some forms of technology where we use street front and aerial imagery to collect information to ensure that the property assessments are as accurate as uh, as they can be.
0: Why do the market values or those, I know you would call your, uh, your system market values, but what I would call uh, market values or the listing price that you see advertised is often very different than the BC assessment value of the property.
1: Well, if you're looking at a, a listing price today, um, the, our assessments are about a year old at this point. Um, so there, there will be a difference. And, and with a rapidly increasing market. You know, our assessments are going to be appearing to be lagging behind because we use that July 1st date, and now we're July 1st of 2016. Uh, we'll be looking at the sales in and around now to give you a July 1st, 2016 valuation in January of 2017.
0: So now that the market is, uh, and you know at this time right now, is blistering hot, we know that, uh, it's not likely to stay like that forever, at least that's the thought, nobody really knows for sure, but does that mean that I may unfairly pay more tax because the, the market around me is so hot?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one to say because it's, you know, the, the taxes and the assessments are done differently. You know, your assessment is based on the sales within the area. And then that information gets provided to your local taxing jurisdiction to determine the tax rate uh, that would be applied to your property.
0: Yeah. And I guess there's other factors as well, like construction, uh, age of property. Does occupancy have anything to do with it?
1: No, it it doesn't.
0: So this is strictly based on the, the structure and the property that it stands on? Yeah,
1: so it's just based on you know the, the physical structure, the location of the property, some other factors about the age, you know, the condition of the house, um, and then we look at what you know comparable properties have sold for within that area to determine what the assessment is. So occupancy does not play a factor within our assessments.
0: Do you look at new things
1: as, uh, let's say, new transportation lines or, or things like that as well going into the these neighborhoods? Yeah, we, we take a look at that and, and, you know, we want to make sure that we know those type of information and in the ongoings within particular pockets of our real estate. But we will be waiting to react to see how does the market uh, react to new transportation lines coming within the area. Are we seeing an increase? And then that type of, you know, relationship will be reflected within the assessments.
0: So when you're dealing with new construction uh, in that theme, new constructions, subdivisions, rezonings, they would also have an impact on property values as well.
1: Yes, they do, uh, you know, uh, in, in both different ways, you know, as more supply comes on depending on what the demand is, but then also um, the, the new construction within, within a particular area is generally a signal that uh, it's a desirable area which had to, could have an impact on your assessment.
0: Do you actually visit each property or is this based on some sort of a mathematical uh, or algorithm or something along those lines?
1: At one point in time, your property has been visited by a BC assessment appraiser. Um, but now, you know, we don't get to every property every single year. So that's where we get the, the key information about your property, you know, size, uh, the condition, the age, the location of uh, your lot, the size of your lot. And we use those comparable sales to uh, of properties that have sold that are similar to yours to determine what the assessed value would be.
0: And this is not restricted to residential, is it?
1: No, we, we do every property in BC. So that totals about 2 million uh, properties within BC that we uh, create assessment notices for.
0: And do you have any idea what the, the value of real estate is in British Columbia?
1: Yeah, I do. It is, um, let me just pull it up here. Yeah, so the total value of real estate is $1.34 trillion. Uh, wow. And that was as of July 1st, 2015. And that's looking at the market value of every property as of that date, and then adding them all up together to come up to one point three four.
0: And uh, so if we're on that line of, uh, and maybe you have this in front of you as well, I'm wondering what the value of new construction might be. Do you have any uh, handle on that?
1: The current trends, uh, no, we don't, because we're, we still we look at the new construction for the full year. So I do know that of last year, we added uh, $20.4 billion worth of new construction to the assessment roll. Uh, there's been no signs that uh, there has been a slowdown in construction, uh, so I would anticipate that we see something of a similar number for the 2016, um, the 2016 year.
0: When the notices come out in January 2017, which is not really all that long from now, but you know people will have the usual uh, you know, little bit of a fit when they see that their property went up because of what's happening in the market, that there's always an appeal process. Uh, approximately how many people might appeal in any given year?
1: Yeah, so we generally have about less than 1% of, the, of our assessment notices get appealed. Uh, so that totals you know, about 190,000 properties throughout, throughout the province.
0: And how many of those appeals are successful?
1: Uh, def- determine what you determine successful.
0: Well, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the homeowner.
1: Yeah. So the the conception is that, you know, a number of people think that their properties, you know, are too high. But we also have people that appeal their assessments um, for that they feel that the property value is too low. Right. So, you know, to determine what a success rate is on the number of of properties that appeal and, and getting a change on their assessment, it's it's tough to say because the perception of, you know, somebody's assessment either wrong or right is, is different to each uh, particular homeowner. So success is different for each homeowner.
0: Would there be more uh, appeals based on residential or commercial, or is it about the same? Well, I think it's
1: because there's uh, you know, 87% of the properties that we value are residential or do have a residential component. So on a sheer number point, uh, definitely more residential people are appealing their assessments. Um, but the percentage of each property type, I'm not sure if it's a greater percentage of commercial properties versus uh, residential.
0: Really appreciate your time today. You've been very informative and uh, you've done a great job in and- Uh, Hopefully, we've been able to share this information with people to help them understand. Brian Smith is the Deputy Assessor with Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, and uh, BC Assessment. And we'll uh, catch up with him again in the new year to see how this all unfolds. And uh, we'll take a quick break on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. This morning, we're joined by Vancouver historian John Atkin. He's a publisher, author, lecturer, and heritage advocate. I thought it'd be interesting to look at the real estate market from a historic perspective. John, thanks uh, so much for joining us this morning.
2: Oh, you're more than welcome.
0: It's a a, a bit of a crazy morning with all that's going on uh, with the fluid situation in Baton Rouge, and we'll keep an eye on that, and uh, I'll give you a fair warning that we will break for anything that uh, is uh, coming out of that area. But I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the, the situation in Vancouver in terms of real estate. I know that uh, you are well known for your books and your walking tours and and your lectures. Uh, you uh, take people through Kerrisdale, Shaughnessy, Strathcona, mm-hmm. Chinatown, Mount Pleasant, elsewhere. All these uh, walks are very popular. And it, it, it lets people not only get out and have a look and get some fresh air, but a feeling for the area. So I want to sort of look at the zoning development, densification, gentrification, on and on. You get the idea uh, yep. that the walks are and the tours are very insightful. But the, the thing is, is that the neighborhoods are changing. Have the neighborhoods of Vancouver lost their character or are they, in fact, gaining character?
2: Oh, such an intriguing question. Um, we were actually out yesterday with the Vancouver Heritage Foundation in a small area just south of Queen Elizabeth Park, called Ontario Heights. And this was a neighbourhood that was set aside uh, by a developer in 1913. And uh, there were a few houses from that era, but uh, there was a Depression and the First World War, and so building didn't pick up until the mid-1920s. So you've got a couple of old houses from the the teens. You've got some houses from the mid-20s, and then the bulk of them are actually the late 30s, 40s, and then the 50s, then the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, etc., and that's actually the neighborhood character. It's a very fluid idea. There's no point where you could stop a neighborhood and said that's its character. It's, in fact, the house built yesterday and the house that was built 50 years ago. So I, I think, for me, neighborhood character is something that is of the moment. And I think for the history side of it, that's also true, mm-hmm. because there's no, except for Shaughnessy to a certain degree, and maybe parts of Mount Pleasant, parts of Strathcona, There's no parts of the city that were ever built out at one period and that have actually survived largely intact. So character is a very, for me, a very, very fluid idea. So having said that, I think a good chunk of the city is in fact still, it's there. You can still read the record of the eras of development. There's a few spots on the west side where it does get a little kind of weird when you're trying to walk down the street and you're going, hmm, Where's the house from, say, 1960 or 70? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there has been that sort of uh, rapid redevelopment over the last, let's say, 15, 20 years.
0: One of the complaints that John that we hear often, and and not just in Vancouver, but we hear it in Richmond, we hear it in Coquitlam, North Van, and and West Van, and and in other areas around Metro Vancouver, and, and what is said is that. With all that's going on, with the real estate market being as fluid as it is, with foreign money coming in, with teardowns and this kind of thing, the people are, and I see this in the local paper a lot, the character of my neighborhood has has been diminished. And what you're saying is that may not be so.
2: Well, the character that you or I remember or live with over our period in a neighborhood is certainly changing. But think of someone that moved in five years ago. They've moved into a neighborhood that has a character for them. The character may change for them down the road. And certainly, uh, you know, I sit in, a, in, a, in an 1890s house in the Strathcona neighborhood. Um, you know, and the, and the area around me has, has been changing. And I could point uh, just in my half a block area of just all the new construction Uh, some of the restorations, some of the horrendous renovations. And so even in the period short time that I've been in in my house here, uh, the neighborhood character, quote-unquote, has actually evolved and changed. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's one of those slippery slopes because there's no... I don't think there's a way that you could freeze a neighborhood at a point in time because unlike, say, parts of London, say Georgian London, Uh, where you do walk through these great estates from the late 1600s, early 1700s, that are intact, and that's character, because it's all there and has survived. And here, we're still in that process of building, rebuilding. And I like to point out on some walks that we can walk through a neighborhood, and I can actually show you that we're at the third house on a lot, You know, from a house that was built in 1912, torn down in the 1920s, rebuilt in the 1950s, Rebuilt in the 1990s, et cetera. So character I think is a very fluid idea. many neighborhoods.
0: Well, what do we owe, if anything, to long-term residents uh, in areas that, for example, have been hit by a lot of homes? Mm -hmm. uh, Again, uh, not to overplay this word character, but people would describe them as character homes, homes that are well taken care of and and in reasonably good shape, uh, where their homes are being torn down. And again, do we owe anything? Is there any moral or legal obligation to long-term residents?
2: Well, I think that's where the role of heritage and heritage conservation and a very good, well-done uh, and well-structured heritage register works, because there are jurisdictions around that w- have an active and ongoing heritage register, which, which looks at neighborhoods and kind of goes, you know, that's a house that has certain aspects to it. it. It relates to certain periods of development. So on it goes on the list. Now, what happens in other jurisdictions, so it goes on the list, it has some protection, and surprise, surprise, there's actually some money behind it so that you know the house can be maintained through some grants and, and various things like that. And what we don't do here is have an active regis- register that continually is updated as the city evolves. Our register essentially, for all intents and purposes, stopped in 1985. Mm. And you add buildings to the register when... You want something. So much of what we have as quote unquote designated buildings and new additions to the register are because someone needs to do something that is outside of the existing regulations. And so the heritage is the hook to get the relaxations. But we don't have that active kind of listing. And we have an aversion as homeowners. People are, you know, mostly petrified of the word heritage because they see potentially diminished value and then you know bureaucratic interference and and stuff so there's a fear there but i think if we're looking at neighbors neighborhoods and neighbors and the idea of being respectful to long-time residents and also to certain key buildings in neighborhoods then we need that active participation of the city in supporting that in both acknowledging importance but at the same time making heritage workable so that You know, idiots like me who own an 1890s house and have restored the exterior do it on our own hook. Mm -hmm. The only thing I get out of it is an increased assessment. (laughs) You know, there's zero incentive for me to do this other than I'm crazy. And so that craziness doesn't translate to other people who might appreciate the aesthetic of an older house but just don't want to go down that rabbit hole of, of the sort of expense upkeep, and then potential designation if they so wish, but then all the you know other issues that that might bring up for them.
0: Can I ask you to hang on? Yeah, sure. One of the things that I want to touch on, and uh, this is a little touchy, I- I'll admit, but I want to bring some perspective to uh, what is what we call the race card. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I-, I know it's a sensitive topic, and I know that you can handle it well, but I want to prepare you in advance, and we'll get into that. <laughs> when we come back Uh, this is vancouver consumer and we'll have much more coming up also another update from matt lee at the cknw newsroom from baton rouge louisiana this is vancouver consumer on news talk 980 cknw joining us by phone is john Atkin. he's publisher author lecturer and heritage advocate and uh, one of the go to guys when it comes to knowing anything about uh, our civic history in the area. John, I said before the break that I wanted to at least try to bring some perspective to the situation that is now uh, before us in Vancouver with the real estate market, what it is. Uh, Some people would call it a blame game. Other people call it the race card. Uh, Other people just say it is just straight-out racism. Is there a way that we can bring this to the conversation without appearing to be racist, and is there some perspective that you can offer that will make sense to anyone who's listening right now?
2: (laughs) Well, it is a little bit of a minefield, but um, I think one of the things is if we actually just look at the short history of the city of Vancouver, um, we have been right from day one with the advent of the first sawmills on Burrard Inlet, um, Mm -hmm. a very diverse uh, city because the first non-native settlement down at the Hastings Mill included just almost Pick a nationality, and somebody was there from an African American freed slave right through to a Native Hawaiian to folks from Chile, etc. And so we've been a very diverse city, and I think we forget that diversity has been with us right from day one. And unfortunately, sometimes the shorthand in some social histories of the city paint us as a very European, British centric kind of city, and so then uh, sometimes. When you see different faces you kind of, and purchasing things, it's like, oh, they're coming. But historically, it's always been that way, too. And some of our biggest investors in the city um, have never been from the city. And so you could actually look back at uh, the Duke of Westminster's uh, development company, um, Grosvenor. Uh, large holdings within British Columbia through its early development period, still doing stuff here. The Guinness family, for instance, etc., um through the 70s and uh, early 80s it was german investment huge amounts of german investment that's still very evident here but we don't seem to worry about that so much and i think that's what's troubling is that um over certain points of our history we've seemed to have picked you know sort of unfortunately the visible signs of change and it can go back into the 1980s and i found a uh, a fascinating article, actually, an editorial from the, of all places, Sydney Morning Herald, a newspaper in Australia. And they'd sent a reporter up here to talk about Vancouver's, quote, overheated housing market, and this is 1989. And they're talking about how house prices in Vancouver on the west side had quadrupled in two years. And so they'd gone from 150000 bucks or something to over almost $500,000. And they were talking about how the city was, pointing at Hong Kong, etc. The takeaway from it, though, was Mayor Gordon Campbell, he actually said, no, 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 this is a rate-of-change question. This is not about who's buying. And when you delve into the statistics, there were something like 15,000 people coming from Hong Kong in 1988-89. 32,000 people moved from Ontario and Quebec Mm -hmm. to Vancouver. So, We have this unfortunate trait within the city, um, and it is this long arc, and it has tailed off substantially, but there has been that long arc, unfortunately, of racism uh, against an Asian population. And it goes back to the Anti-Asiatic Leagues in the the early turn of the century, uh, to a revival of that group in the 1920s and early 30s, uh, to... The expulsion of the Japanese off the Pacific coast, etc., and I think some really horrendous discussion and commentary through the 1980s. Where uh, my favorite example is, it got out of hand where we were pointing at new development in the city. We called the monster houses because mm-hmm. they were big. You know, aesthetically back then they weren't pleasing. Surprisingly, today after the landscapes grown up and things, some of them look okay. Mm-hmm. But there were finger pointing, and one example was a house that went up on 16th Avenue, a big sort of um, pseudo-White House-like thing with columns and, and all of that. And the newspaper headlines were all about another quote-unquote Asian house des- destroys character in the neighborhood. And it turned out to be a Greek couple that had lived in Canada for, for huge amounts of time. Mm-hmm. And this was their dream house, and they'd saved the money to build it. So it, the finger-pointing can get out of hand, but it's a historic feature of the city. We've We've kind of always had that unfortunate tendency to point fingers at a visible, what we think is a visible cause, which isn't
0: necessarily the cause of what's going on. Not supported by fact. And the thing, when I asked you that question, and and I really thank you for for your comments, by the way, I think uh, what you did and, and what I was hoping for was some perspective. And I think you gave that to us. And I think the takeaway here, John, is that it's not... Uh, an Asian influence here that is that that is taking place. It it it, it it's coming from all areas, and and that it, over the years we've had uh, investment from all parts of the world, and never said a thing about it, uh, except now we have uh, what you would call, as you said, a visible group that is uh, investing in our area, and 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 we're getting angry about it.
2: Well, and I think the other confusion, too, is that we forget that 38% or so of our population is of Asian origin. And as one of the larger real estate marketers mentioned a while back, um, he says, you know, you can walk into the presentation center, and and he termed it this. He said, you know, you can see that it's a sea of black hair. Hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean what it looks like, because he said, these guys Live within, you know, however many kilometers of the development, and they're actually local residents. And and I think that's the thing that we forget is that the the Asian population has been a fixture of British Columbia since non-native settlement began. Yeah,
0: but and, have we have we learned anything, John Atkins? Over the years, <laughs> I mean, if this is if we have this historic perspective on mm-hmm. real estate in this market, uh, it, it seems to me that we've we've learned very little.
2: Well, I think we forget that. Vancouver has always been popular, and every decade, roughly, I can pull out newspaper headlines from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And the headline has always been, the average Vancouverite cannot afford a house in the city. And so we've had, now, admittedly, right now, I think my colleagues who who track this say that this is certainly a big spike in the real estate prices that are really a little bit out of... Out of whack, but we have seen consistently that notion of real estate as the investment, real estate as the commodity. And, you know, I go back to Ontario Heights, that little area that we walked through uh, on Saturday, and the first advertisement for Ontario Heights said a neighborhood for a man of modest means
1: mm-hmm.
2: who wants to build a good house in a neighborhood of good houses. But then you read in through the copy and it's basically, buy now, prices will go up, Mm -hmm. here's your chance to get in, invest now, prices will rise. And so there you are using real estate as that investment and hoping that it it always accelerates. And I think when it does, we're both pleased and then we're shocked because, oh my God, it's so expensive. And I think we're just, we, we have been that type of city in a boom period, apart from some key blips. We've been in a continuous boom
0: right from our founding. Here's a challenge for you. In 30 yeah. seconds, as we wrap up here, mm-hmm. what what should we take away from this? What can we, again, I'll use that word perspective. With that perspective, how can we overcome anything that might even remotely resemble racism as we deal with the issues of uh, real estate in Vancouver?
2: Well, I think quite simply, from my perspective, stop pointing fingers and let's look at what can we do uh, to build um, and to accommodate more density. And I know density is sometimes a bad word, but we've got neighbourhoods which can stand a lot of small-scale interventions. You can look at Mount Pleasant, Strathcona, and uh, parts of Kitsilano where there's a lot of density. Neighbourhood still has, quote-unquote, the character, and yet you can accommodate a lot more folks. And I think if we get off onto the planning stuff, do really great, careful planning and get on with it and just stop pointing fingers, because it's easy to point fingers. It's you know, tried to say that the solution is the hard part. Right. But I think, But if we get down to it and really insist from the city, good planning, um, I think we could actually um, create an even better city that we, than we
0: have right now. We got to go. Where is okay. your next walk? Where can we find out about it?
2: Uh, Vancouver Heritage Foundation for the Saturday morning walks. We're continuing to walk the zero point for addresses in Vancouver, which is the length of Ontario. And my site, joanatkin.com, for the Wednesday night
0: heritage walks. Appreciate your time. No, my pleasure. Thank you. John Atkin, Vancouver historian. He's a publisher, author, lecturer, and heritage advocate. You can find out more on his website, johnatkin.com, or vancouverheritagefoundation.org. We'll be back in just a moment on Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980. CKNW. New information published on Tuesday by the CRTC reveals that 200,000 Canadians cut the cord on traditional TV services from 2014 to 2015. And as Canadians continue this practice, advocates are urging the CRTC to end data caps. Joining us this morning by phone is David Christopher. He's the communications manager at Open Media. Nice of you to be with us this morning. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Ian. Who is Open Media? Uh, we're we're a digital
3: rights organisation. Uh, we're probably best known for our work uh, trying to make the Canadian telecom market uh, more affordable and more uh, consumer friendly.
0: Where does your money come from? Who's behind you? Who backs you? Oh, uh,
3: we, well, we're we funding from a wide range of sources, but the majority of our funding comes from uh, small grassroots donations uh, from our supporters. Uh, especially those sort of monthly uh, recurring uh, small gifts, they're really what uh, power this uh, organization.
0: One of the reasons I asked the question is because somebody like myself who works in the media is very, very familiar with the work that you do at Open Media, but I wonder, has the mainstream caught on to what you're up to? Um,
3: I think increasingly the kind of issues that we're working on, uh, whether it's affordable access to uh, telecom services, uh, whether it's trying to get w- rid of uh, data caps uh, or other issues such as online privacy and free expression increasingly they are becoming much more mainstream uh, here in Canada and also uh, around the rest of the uh, Industrialized world. Uh, you know, I've been with open media now for just over uh, three and a bit uh, years, uh, so, so quite a while. And even in that time frame, I, th- I think we've seen these kind of issues uh, get increasingly uh, uh, prominent. Uh, more and more people are becoming aware of just how important it is uh, that we have a, an internet that's affordable and accessible and, and surveillance free uh, um, uh, because. Uh, you know, it, the internet is simply the most powerful uh, communication tool uh, that humanity has ever invented, and uh, we we've really got to protect it.
0: Let's go over some of the terminology. Uh, data caps. What are we talking about? So data caps
3: uh, uh, on your uh, internet service. Uh, they're basically where your internet provider says you can use X amount a month, and if you're going to use over that, we're going to charge you uh, an overage charge. And these charges are often uh, uh, pretty expensive. Um, Famously, on on uh, wireless Internet, uh, we had a situation until a couple of years ago uh, where, you know, a family could go to uh, uh, Mexico, for example, uh, blow through their... Uh, 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 if they used their phone abroad, they were often coming home to ridiculous uh, 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 bills uh, mm-hmm. because they had gone over whatever their data allowance in Mexico was. Uh, but we've also seen a situation here in Canada where people, I think, I'm sure your listeners have experienced, you know, opening up that monthly uh, uh, Internet bill or cell phone bill. And then it's much more than you expect uh, simply because you've been using more data uh, than what your telecom company company's plan uh, allows you to use. Uh, So they've been a source of immense frustration for consumers uh, here in Canada for many years uh, because when you compare Canada with our other industrialised countries around the world, uh, we're really getting a raw deal uh, on uh, cell phones. Our data caps are way stingier here uh, than they are in most other uh, industrialised nations Uh, and there is also none of the big three cell phone providers in Canada uh, offer an unlimited option at all. And that really sticks out, you know, in the US, in the UK. I'll I'll take the UK, for example, you can get a plan with unlimited data there uh, for the equivalent of about 30 bucks a month, Um, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, mind-blowing when you consider what Canadians are paying, often twice that for a plan with a a very low uh, uh, data cap. And what's also uh, really unusual is when it comes to wired internet, home internet, Uh, Data caps in much of the world uh, on home internet are just unheard of, uh, whereas here in Canada, most home internet services, especially the ones coming from the big uh, uh, telecom companies, uh, do have these data caps, and if you go over them, you're going to get charged uh, quite a hefty
0: fee. 200,000 Canadians have cut the cord on traditional TV since, uh, or from 2014 to 2015, what does that tell you? Is that a a question of they're finding other places to get uh, TV, not watching television, uh, there's nothing good to watch? Uh, what does all of that mean?
3: Uh, yeah, well, we, we, this is a continuation of a, a, a fairly long-standing trend where more and more Canadians are moving away from this sort of old fashioned uh, cable TV uh, which is a very sort of linear you know you're kind of stuck with whatever happens to be on uh, TV uh, uh, that evening um, and many of the channels that you get in that package you know you might be terribly interested in so we've seen we've seen this long trend away from cable TV and but a big reason for this is, is, is the internet as streaming services have uh, kind of become more popular uh, we've seen Netflix we've seen other uh, services launch in Canada over recent years, more and more people are looking to the internet as the primary place for them to uh, to consume content. Whether that's watching their favourite movies and TV shows uh, on demand, you know, picking from these huge uh, streaming libraries that are out there, or even increasingly watching live sports, live news, uh, it's all available uh, uh, online these days. Uh, we've seen a sort of a real upsurge in popularity in uh, these sort of devices like Apple TV boxes or Roku boxes that make it very easy to uh, uh access all this uh, content from the, you know it's a pretty similar experience than what you you've got a remote control you point it at the TV and you can choose uh, uh which streaming service to watch and so we've seen not just in Canada but across the uh, uh, many countries around the world more and more people going why am i spending 70 bucks a month For a bunch of TV channels, most of which I don't watch, when all that content is there, available uh, online, and I can pretty much watch as much of it uh, as I want. So that's kind of the reason why more and more people, I think, are uh, cutting the cord. And you know, at Open Media, we really see the problem that there's simply not enough choice, not enough competition in the marketplace. Uh, if you get more, uh, especially these smaller independent companies uh, uh, coming in, uh, offering more competition, that that's what will bring prices down. It's the fact that we've got just a few uh, extremely large telecom. Giants, really, uh, controlling so much of the market here in Canada. That's really the why we pay so much more for Internet services at home and Internet services on our cell phones uh, than people in the UK or in the US or many other countries right. around the world. In so you want day.
0: people to, to jump on to this open letter, which uh, essentially is asking the CRTC to dismantle the data caps and uh, join forces with you to help get that message across. So far, over 30,000 people have gotten on that. And where can you go to uh, add your voice, if you like?
3: Yeah, if you go to act.openmedia.org. Uh, you can endorse that uh, open letter uh, right there. We're, we're going to be working over the months ahead with the, uh, as the CRTC proceeding uh, continues. Uh, I think they're going to be holding hearings uh, starting in October. And it's going to be one of the biggest uh, stories in telecom uh, this fall and into the winter because, of course, if they do get rid of data caps, I think you can. Uh, There's going to be rejoicing uh, uh, from internet users from uh, from coast to coast to coast. So we're going to be working hard to make that happen. But it's really important that we get uh, everyday Canadians on our side, joining these campaigns because we've really seen with the CRTC in recent years that that really is effective. That really makes a difference. Uh, the CRTC are increasingly keen uh, to listen to what everyday Canadians want from their telecom market and not just to what big
0: telecom companies want. David Christopher is the Communications Manager at Open Media. We thank you for your time today and look forward to another conversation in the near future. Thank you.
3: Uh, Thanks again for having me, Ian.